Welcome back to AD 79, Year Vesuvius, Episode 3, The Rise of the Flavians. Last time we covered the Roman enterprise from its origins to the elevation of Octavian Augustus, princeps or first citizen of what was to be the Roman Empire. He ruled effectively for 56 years, and Rome had thrived. In AD 14, he died, and all Rome mourned. Technically, succession should not have been an issue since princeps was not a legal position, but people had gotten used to it, and in his will, Augustus was able to pass the title on to his stepson, the doer Tiberius, to be followed by the mad Caligula, then Claudius, then Nero, men of mixed records and whose suitability to the role can be and has been argued elsewhere. We shall discuss these rulers only insofar as they touched on the careers of the Flavian brothers. Augustus became princeps at age 36, and from his portraits appears to have been frozen at age 30 or so. Vespasian became emperor at age 60, and his portraits reflect it. Bald on top, deep lines and furrows on his face. One current joke was that he looked like he was struggling to pass a stool. To his credit, he laughed. Self-deprecation was strong in him. More to the point, his portraits, unlike those of almost all other Roman emperors, are rarely heroic. In some, there is the hint of a smile, all but unique among imperial portraits. A wry smile, but a smile just the same. By the time Vespasian found himself emperor, he had seen a lot and understood that the cosmos will have its little jokes. So, who was he? He was a country boy for starters and carried a country accent for his entire life. His family was not patrician, and not, like the Julio-Claudians, descended from any gods. A flattering genealogist once claimed that an ancestor had been a companion to Hercules. Vespasian just laughed. More sober research got no farther back than his great-grandfather, said to have been an unnamed Gaul who led a crew of agricultural workers south to harvest the rich fields near Riate, Sabine country, modern Lazio. This anonymous man presumably had some organizational and leadership talents at the very least. He married an unnamed local woman, and their son, Titus Flavius Petro, joined the army and served as a centurion under Pompey the Great at the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC. Like his father, Titus Flavius Petro would have been a man accustomed to being in charge and likely physically imposing, which would suit him for his next job as a publican, that is to say, a tax collector. Petro married a woman we know only as Tertulla, said to have large estates on Italy's west coast near Cosa. Petro and Tertulla begot Titus Flavius Sabinus, who may have been a soldier, but like his father, certainly was a publican. Roman biographer Suetonius tells us that locals in his area of responsibility, the rich port city of Smyrna, modern Izmir in Turkey and environs, erected statues to him with the label a to an honest tax collector. From there, he started a second, or third, career as a banker in Roman Helvetia, a Swiss banker, if you like. Like his father, Titus Flavius Sabinus returned to Reate and married up, in his case to Vespasia Pola of the Vespasia family, very respectable in that part of the world. The couple had two sons, Titus Flavius Sabinus II, and the future emperor, Vespasian. The father now fades a bit from our story. We don't even know when he died. Vespasia Pola, however, comes into her own. 
She seems to have been a forceful woman. Her brother was a senator, and she was determined that her two sons would be senators as well. One did not just decide to be a senator. Just to be in the running, the would-be politician needed a million sisters. As senators, they would not be allowed to engage in trade or banking. Money had to come through agriculture or inheritance or looting foreign enemies. It was a class thing. Any number of men were richer than senators and happy to remain so. Who cared about the title if you have the money? Young Vespasian appears to have fallen into this camp. Raised largely by his grandmother Tertula on that estate by the sea, Vespasian had to be pushed by his stage mother into politics. She predicted life full of humiliation if he failed. He could expect to be the anti-ambulo of his more obedient older brother Sabinus, that is to say, the man who pushed the crowds aside as the very important Senator Sabinus walked through the busy streets on important government business. Vespasian gave in and followed Sabinus on the Cursus Honorum. The Cursus Honorum, the Path of Honors, was a series of increasingly responsible administrative positions, civil and military, required of any man who presumed to become a senator. Not a bad system, if you think about it. The surprise is that no modern country has adopted it. Getting to the first step was likely helped by the boy's uncle, who presumably had connections to Antonia Minor. She was the daughter of Mark Antony, niece of Augustus, widow of Tiberius's brother, mother of Claudius, grandmother of Caligula, connected. Very rich, very influential. It was in this household that Vespasian met the young Kinus, personal secretary to Antonia. Very bright, very clever. She and Vespasian were an item, despite her being a slave, for years, an arrangement that survived his long absences overseas as well as his one marriage. Unlike his relatives, Vespasian did not marry up. His wife, Flavia Domatila, was the daughter of an equestrian bureaucrat and the delicata of an equites, possibly a distant relative. Delicata is a little nebulous. Mistress, if you like. She's another shadowy figure, her death date, some years before Vespasian became emperor, unrecorded. The young Vespasian's first notable responsibility was as the edil in charge of waste management of the Roman street. This was no small job, given the colossal amount of rubbish the city produced. Again, we're dealing with a million people, largely apartment dwellers, few of them with indoor plumbing, and not a few of them apt to dump loaded chamber pots onto the street. Add to this broken crockery, animal waste, rotting vegetable matter, even corpses, and you can see the challenges that Vespasian faced on a daily basis. Caligula, we learn, was not happy, and had Vespasian brought forth so that soldiers could fill the folds of his clothing with filth. Not great, but Vespasian seems to have upped his game, and a little later managed to move higher in the Cursus Honorum. As Praetor of AD 39, he financed some chariot races in honor of the emperor. This resulted in a dinner invitation, which Vespasian announced to the Senate. Scholars point to this as proof of his groveling. Perhaps, but dining with Caligula was never a pleasing prospect. If you liked the look of your wife... He might take her aside for a quick tumble, then return to the meal and comment on how it went. At one gathering of dignitaries, he burst out laughing for no apparent reason, and when asked why, said that he just realized that with a single word he could have soldiers cut off the heads of all his guests.
Vespasian, as we shall see, had a taste for irony. Races were more or less expected of a praetor, and it is doubtful many of his fellow senators envied Vespasian his invitation. In January 41, Caligula was assassinated and life improved for the Flavians. Caligula's uncle Claudius, Antonia Minor's son, now came to power and sent Vespasian to help conquer Britain. For four years, Vespasian did just that, methodically taking down village or fortress or town, one by one, until he had Romanized most of southwestern Britain. He topped that off by subduing all of the Isle of Wight. Brother Sabinus was also present, an aide to the overall commanding general, possibly married to the general's daughter. Back to Rome, where Vespasian was given triumphal ornaments. Only the emperor could get a triumphal parade. He was then elected consul, and eventually made a governor of North Africa. That job did not go so well. Unlike most governors, instead of getting rich on the locals, he lost a good deal of his own money and had to work as a mule trader back in Italy to restore the family fortune. By now, Nero is princeps, however unsuited he was to the job. He preferred the thrill of athletic competition and the rewards of performing music before a crowd. In AD 67, he decided to make a tour of Greece, where he could compete as both athlete and esthete, against the best and most civilized men on earth. All told, 1,808 contests of various kinds were arranged. Nero won 1,808 first prizes. For unclear reasons, he had invited Vespasian, a man 28 years his senior, with no obvious interest in races or recitals, to be part of the entourage. Vespasian disgraced himself by nodding off during one of Nero's performances, and found himself kicked out of the inner circle. Fortuitously, he was within calling distance when alarming reports of the Jewish rebellion in Judea reached Nero. The emperor had this proven veteran sail east and take charge. Reprising his work in Britain, Vespasian methodically went from village or fortress or town and lay siege. Every victory, and sooner or later every siege was a Roman victory, took him one step closer to Jerusalem itself. He also brought along his eldest son Titus to aid the war effort, a move which would have serious consequences. Judea was not the only well of discontent in the empire. In AD 68, a small revolt broke out in Gaul and metastasized into a larger rebellion. Nero, busy in Greece with his performance art, reluctantly came home, then dithered, until an impatient senate decided that he had to go. That should have suited him just fine. He had never liked the dull grind of civil administration. The senate, however, a bit vindictive, was calling for some kind of penalty for his poor performance, and, more to the point, of his draining the imperial treasury. What did they have in mind? The old punishment. Meaning what, exactly? To be placed in a leather sack along with a dog, a snake, a rooster, and a monkey— sewn up and tossed into the Tiber River. Well, that didn't appeal to Nero at all, and so, wrapped in women's clothing, he fled Rome on a dark and stormy night, ending up at the country house of a loyal freedman, where he tried to figure out his next move. Time ran out. The next day, he could see in the distance a squadron of mounted soldiers coming for him, and rather than be captured, he committed suicide. Among his parting thoughts... What an artist dies in me. Lesson being, if your child has a passion for sports and theaters, don't push him into politics. 
Nature hates a vacuum, and there are always ambitious men who like to be in charge. Three popped up in 8068, spiritual heirs of Marius and Sulla et al., if not as strong-minded or as capable. 8069 was destined to go down as the year of four emperors. They were unique characters, each of them. First up was Galba, a patrician of impeccable background. He had his family tree carefully painted on his wall at home, all the way back to Jupiter and Pasiphae. He also had an impressive military record. But he was a martinet, cruel, unobservant, arrogant. By 8069, he was racked with crippling arthritis, which helps explain why he was so cranky. As governor of Spain, when that rebellion broke out in Gaul, he was guilty of not assuring Nero of his loyalty fast enough. Recalled to Rome to explain himself, he instead took over the rebellion and got the support of the Senate. Then there was Otho, an equally patrician but seemingly feckless man, years younger than Galba. His great misfortune had been to have married the most beautiful woman in Rome, Nema Poppea, and to have been a close friend of Nero. Nero found Poppea captivating, and what Nero wanted, Nero got. To keep things from getting awkward, the emperor had Otho sent to Portugal as governor. No surprise, then, that Otho was an early supporter of the rebellious Galba. In exchange, he expected to be adopted by the aging, sickly man, and so eventually become emperor himself. It didn't happen. Galba thought Otho frivolous, which he was, or at least had been when he ran the nightlife with Nero. Not emperor material, in short, and once the two rebels were back in Rome, Galba adopted someone else as son and heir. Otho may have been feckless, but he was not a total pushover. He organized a coup, had Galba assassinated, had the adopted son killed, and put himself forward as princeps. The Senate, who had found Galba irritating, which he was, obliged. Unfortunately, while all this was going on, troops in Germany refused to swear allegiance to either of the new emperors. They decided that their commander, Aulus Vitellius, should be princeps. Vitellius, another twig on an ancient patrician family tree, was a large man, but weak, and went along for the ride. His soldiers moved south, Otho's moved north, battle was joined, Otho's men lost, twice, and Otho, rather than see more Roman blood spilled, abdicated and committed suicide, an act of old-fashioned self-sacrifice that astonished his contemporaries. Vitellius marched into Rome, and the Senate just watched. No record how he felt about Otho. The new boss was no improvement on the old bosses. Vitellius and his German soldiers made themselves at home, indulged in general excess, all at great cost. Word of this misbehavior spread across the empire, most particularly to the eastern Mediterranean. It wasn't long before various influential men and women more or less forced Vespasian's hand. Among them was the Jewish princess Berenice, who had begun a torrid affair with Titus. There will be much more to say about that in due course. Like it or not, Vespasian would, one way or another, replace Vitellius as emperor. So while Vitellius and company were gorging and drinking and whoring and robbing in Rome, legions commanded by friends of Vespasian began a long march to Italy. Once in Italy, they had better luck than Otho had had. Troops loyal to Vitellius fought hard, but were steadily falling back to the city. Diplomacy was called for. 
and it happened that the urban prefect at Rome was none other than Vespasian's elder brother Sabinus. Sabinus was a genial, chatty man of some ability and could have made a decent emperor himself. For now, his job was to negotiate with Vitellius, who, like Nero, hadn't really wanted the job in the first place. All he had ever wanted was to kick back and enjoy life. It happened that the emperor's father had, like Vespasian and Sabinus, been a fellow client of Antonia Minor, so we were dealing with men who knew and understood each other. Vitellius was willing to step down in exchange for a nice villa in the country, freedom from prosecution, and a hefty pension. His faction was not willing. As Sabinus left the negotiations, a crowd of Italian supporters turned ugly and chased him to the Capitoline Hill. Sabinus and his supporters were able to blockade the heights, hoping to be rescued by Vespasian's troops, then just miles out of town. Misplaced hopes, as it turned out. The men surrounding the Capitoline managed to set fire to the defense works and even to the Temple of Jove itself. These pumped-up battalions rushed through the broken barricades and began to slaughter the outnumbered Flavians. Eventually Sabinus was captured, brought to Vitellius. A stronger man might have taken charge and stood up to his underlings. Vitellius, helpless, did not. Sabinus was dragged off and killed. Also in the Capitoline, but not killed, was Vespasian's second son, Domitian, he joined a company of priests of Isis and walked through the choking smoke past the looting Vitellians down the hill and eventually to a safe house where he waited until his father's men secured the city. A bloody affair the final assault was too, with locals crowding the rooftops and directing soldiers on each side to kill each other. Chaos ruled the streets, shops were looted, prostitutes worked their trade in the open air. Vitellius himself had tried to reach the docks and get a ship out of town. His own men got to him first, and he was soon put to the knife. His last words, a plaintive objection. But I was your emperor once. Six transit Gloria. There would be many months before Vespasian himself came to town, as his underlings cleared up the mess. He was busy in Alexandria, in Egypt assuring the locals that Rome was now back in business and under new and better management. He was well advised to be out of town while his associates cleaned up the city. Walls stained with blood were not a good look, and the surviving Vitellians had some misdeeds that needed dealing with. Vespasian's partisans, prudent men, wanted him to arrive looking more like a savior than just another conqueror. When, many months later, Vespasian finally did show, the Senate, and remember he had been one of these men and his character was well known to them, the Senate voted him a triumph. He turned it down, arguing, rightly, that a triumph was inappropriate when both sides were Roman. He would, however, agree to a triumph to celebrate the capture of Jerusalem, just as soon as Titus could finish up that bit of business. That nasty affair was finished in September of AD 70, after which Titus took a cruise around the Greek islands with Berenice, cementing relationships with the various Mediterranean states. He returned to Rome for the dual triumph, father and son in twin chariots with Domitian riding a trace horse. It was a spectacular affair, described in detail by the Jewish historian Josephus, an eyewitness, as follows. Masses of silver and gold and ivory in every shape known to the craftsman art could be seen, not as if carried in procession, but like a flowing river. 
There are hangings born, some in the rarest shades of crimson, others embroidered with lifelike portraits by Babylonian artists. Transparent stones, some set in golden crowns, some in other mounts, were carried past in such numbers that we could see how foolish we had been to suppose them rare. In the procession, too, were images of the Roman gods, wonderful in size and of true artistic merit, every one of them made from costly materials, and animals of many kinds were led past, all decked with the proper trappings. A marble bas-relief can still be seen inside the Arch of Titus in Rome, the seven-armed menorah unmistakable near the middle. Vespasian's reaction to this great honor? At the end of the day, worn out by the chariot's slow and bone-shaking crawl over the stony streets of Rome, he is recorded as saying, in his country accent, serves me right for being so foolish as to want a triumph in my old age. He meant it as a joke. And so began ten years of good rule. The treasures of Jerusalem provided a healthy jump start to a treasury that had been drained by Vespasian's immediate predecessors. Taxes kept the engine running. Some of these were unusual. Vespasian famously taxed urine from public toilets, urine being necessary for treating wool. When Titus said that this was undignified, Vespasian held up a coin to his face and said, But this doesn't stink. Public urinals in Rome and Paris were still called Vespasiani or Vespasienne, until city authorities did away with them in the 20-teens. For this kind of cheese pairing, Vespasian got a reputation for being cheap. Well, he had been rich and he had been poor, relatively poor, and he had a banker's understanding of money. Cheap he may have been, but Roman currency was strong and public funds went for public benefit. The city of Rome itself, parts of it still black from the Great Fire of 64, got a makeover, as did other cities. There was also the Temple of Capitoline Jove, burned down by Vitellius's men, now rebuilt and finer than ever before. Peace had broken out. Augustus had built a so-called Arapacus, altar of peace, a modest work of exquisite workmanship. You can still see it in nearly its entirety in Rome. It features bas-reliefs of the extended Julio-Claudian family and a few friends in January of 9 BC, along with renderings of beneficent gods. It measures about 35 by 35 feet. Vespasian, not to be outdone, built a temple of peace, about ten times that size. His offering consisted of a large open-air portico surrounding a central campus with an open apse at one end. Beneath the portico were alcoves to house the more interesting treasures from Jerusalem and the Greek artworks stolen by Nero. If you had been alive at the time, a trip there would have been far more rewarding than a trip to the Augustan number. Now, unfortunately, that temple and its contents are long gone. A few columns and bits of paving give an idea of what it had been. Vespasian lived a modest life, not in the palaces of the Palatine Hill, but near the gardens of Sallust, a longer walk to the Forum. He re-established his relationship with Cenus, now a free woman with what appears to have been a nice inheritance from Antonia Minor, enough to buy a house by the city gates. She supplemented her income by selling influence. Vespasian could not object too much. He likely got his life-changing appointment as general in Britain through a payoff. She would predecease him. In his tenth year as emperor, Vespasian was slowing down. He turned over much of the ceremonial work and more to his sons. 
Titus was still unmarried and had no sons, but time enough for that. Domitian had a daughter, but Domitian was the spare anyway. The future hopes of the empire did not rest on him, and as we shall see, Domitian was probably fine with that. So, we are now up to date and can return to the concerns of AD 79. Next time, out of the city and into the country, where the vast majority of the ancients lived and made their livings, and where the passage of the seasons was most keenly felt. Until next time, thank you for listening.